Thought Media Network is proud to present Cosmic Prayers, your weekly shift, Mondays at 11, Mountain Time, with your host, Laura Topper. The Cosmic Prayers, live from the UK. And now, here she is, Laura Topper. Hi, and welcome, welcome again to the Cosmic Prayer. It's just so great to be here and to be transmitting all the way from the UK with our guest, our amazing guest that is uh, joining the Cosmic Prayer broadcast today. Uh, not in the UK, <laughs> in the USA. So this is, this is truly a global broadcast. Uh, if you're watching now or if you're uh, joining later, then welcome here, wherever you are. On this beautiful planet you are uh, we are streaming through new thought media network this incredible ministry and broadcasting platform that brings so many uh, wonderful uh, inspirational shows for you to be able to know the truth of who you are firstly and then to use spiritual practice for your life to empower your life uh, um, to inspire you on this beautiful experience that we call life and so our guest today of course uh, she is somebody that truly inspires me that's why she's here um, Reverend Dr Ruth Miller who came on to the cosmic prayer last year and really left an amazing kind of template of wisdom for me and for for you i know if you, if you saw her last year and if not this is another opportunity to really glean from this incredible woman who is a, a fantastic asset to new thought as a teacher an author a speaker and a, a, just a, a vessel, a source of wisdom and knowledge on new thought and what new thought has been through over the last hundred years. I know Dr. Miller has researched this and researched many of the new thought teachers and speakers and is here to speak about them today. So welcome, Dr. Miller, to the Cosmic Hi. Prayer. Hi, it's good to Hi. be here. <laughs> it's so great for you to be, say yes and to come back again and join um, I know so much has happened for everybody on the planet over the last 12 months and so it's oh wonderful for you to come back and refresh. Thank you, <laughs> Refresh dear. us. Thank you. Yes. And so I wonder, um, as, as, a, as a kind of entry point here, I know you've written a book, or I, I mean, I was just looking at your website, and you've written many books. In the last year you've written, haven't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the book that I'm really interested in is this, The, the Divine Feminine, yes. uh, the book about the Divine Feminine. And, and I'd love for you to share your inspiration for this book and what this book really means and the message of this book. All right. Well, it yeah. just came out a couple of weeks ago. And the title, this is actually the third edition of this book. Um, this title of this edition is Madonna, Magdalene and Beyond. Madonna, Magdalene, and beyond. And the subtitle is Feminine Power Hidden in Empire Culture. How, why, and what's next? Oh, that is a juicy subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> so what we've done, or what I did, I had over the years, I had been very interested in the role of the divine feminine and, and the figurines that people had found all over Europe. And I had been very interested in the way that the, the Aryan language had affected what's called Indo-European languages all over the uh, world. And I had noticed, I grew up in the inner city, so I was well aware of racial issues. And I had as, as an anthropologist, I had observed that in every country that I could see things, it was very clear that the people in charge were light-skinned and the most downtrodden were the darkest-skinned people present. And in fact, at the age of 18, before I'd ever studied anthropology, actually 17, I, I had this little theory 
that the minority that was most visible, most, you know, largest numbers was the most oppressed in any group. So uh, having grown up in Chicago, it was the African-Americans. I went to high school in the San Francisco area. It was the Chinese. I went to college in New Mexico. It was the Indians, the American Indians. And so they were always used, described in the same language, the same terms, the same issues, the same, oh, don't go there because, right? So that was fascinating to me. And it's part of why I went into anthropology. Um, then I discovered that in many cultures, the um, if they weren't urbanized cultures, if they were what we call traditional or indigenous or earth-centered cultures, there were the men and women were equal but had different roles. Okay, this was the women's sphere, this was the men's sphere, and in decision making, men made their decisions and women made their decisions. But where it affected everyone, both groups had equal say, and in fact, the grandmothers could veto almost anything that everyone else had decided, which made sense if you think about life experience and all of that. So that awareness that there, that there were cultural norms that were different from what we had been taught was huge for me. So those things have been accumulating all my life. And then while I was um, working in Southern Oregon, I was, began to see more and more evidence of women beginning to move into a spiritual sphere that was different from anything that we had all grown up with. And I discovered Sherry Anderson's book, um, which is The Feminine Face of God, but it's actually how women have to redefine spirituality in order to have a spiritual life. And then Dan Brown's book, <laughs> The Da Vinci Code, came out. And my students were all going, is this true? Is this true? Is this true? And I could not say how much of it was true based on the information that I had. So I went to France. <laughs> and I went and I saw personally how deeply the you know, La Marie Madeleine, Mary Magdalene, was embedded in the Southern France culture, how fully and deeply she contributed to the lives of people there. And it wasn't just the gypsies, which is what we hear about at the, the, the festival, but it was the, there are chapels to Mary Magdalene all over you know, France and Spain, and not far from them are chapels to John the Baptist, and that fits with what Dan Brown says, and that fits with, you know, I began to study the Templars at a new level and found all kinds of things. And just, you know, so I studied and studied and studied, and I went to Santa Bome, which is said to be the place, at least for the French people, that Marie Magdalene had been spending her last decades. And I went to Maximin, which is the town where her relics are honored at this point. And I learned the history and I said, this story has to be told. So I put all of that together. So what we have in this book, Madonna, Magdalene and Beyond, is the introduction with me talking about Chartres Cathedral as being the, the overview. You walk into Chartres and you get the overview and then talking about how it is that the Caucasians moved out of the Caucasus Mountains and took over and imposed new values and new ways of being every 200 years in waves. And in the appendix, I detail every 200 years for the history of humanity, all the way from about 6,000 BC to about George W. Bush. We've done it every 200 years and so then i showed how the empires were formed and then i talk about the history of the Isra israelites the hebrew people from that perspective okay so abram was an, a, a caucasian out of ur and sarai his half sister who was also his wife was and whose name meant princess <laughs> you know, had 300 soldiers as they're traveling across the country. 
and yes. you know, uh, right. And then it happened that they're in Egypt at the time when Hittites, Caucasians, are running Egypt. Um, and so I, I, I weave that whole story together. I talk about the, quote, Venus figurines. And if you look at them from the perspective of an adult female, a mature female, you recognize these are not oddly shaped women. These are middle-aged women of various weights. Yes. They are grandmothers. Yes. They are matriarchs in that yes. sense. Now, there are no matriarchal cultures anywhere. No matriarchs. I don't care. There's this video that says this Tibetan group are matriarchal. But if you look, women are in charge in their sphere. Men are in charge in their sphere. And women's sphere is home. Mm -hmm. And in their home, they're in charge. But they're not in charge of the village. That is not a matriarchy. It's matrilineal and matrilocal and matrifocal, but not matriarchal. Does that oh make sense? Oh my word, yes. Yes, good. Yes. So we've never in indigenous earth-centered people anywhere ever had women running the show the way we have men running the show when light-skinned men are in charge or men who've been trained to be in what I call empire culture. The heroes in all the stories in the Southeast Asia, the hero has the white skin and the, the uh, villain has the black skin. The hero wears the white hat, the villain wears the black hat. You know, it goes on and on and on throughout the world. And what has happened is the empire culture has a value of acquisition, accumulation, and control. This is what we inherited from those early Caucasians and the imposition of strong men on the rest of the people so those strong men can acquire, accumulate, and control. Well, in order for the rest of the people to recognize this strong man's in charge, there's one leftover little bit of the indigenous culture that needs to be acknowledged, and that is during the time when we were transitioning from hunter-gathering into village cultures, which lasted for thousands of years. This is not just a little tiny temporary time. And there are still cultures, river gardening cultures, still on the planet today that started 20,000 years ago, 12,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago. I mean, just, you know, they've been around and they've, they're, they're sustainable. They're in the same location. A friend of mine went back to um, Italy to check out his family, and he found them in a house that they'd been living in for over a thousand years. Yes. <laughs> this is sustainable, right? So all of this is woven into my research. And in order for the guy, the new guy to come in and be in charge, he has to connect with the divine feminine, the woman who has been selected by the village for her wisdom and her intuition has to be paired with him. It's called the sacred marriage, the sacred marriage, the hieros gamos, which Dan Brown yes. sort of talks about a little bit in the Da Vinci Code, the hieros gamos. Now, Carl Jung tells us the hieros gamos happens inside us. Yes. It's our own inner masculine and feminine coming together. And this is true. But in the village, it is represented as the goddess in her maiden form, and then her mother form, and then her grandmother form, right? And the man, the strong man who protects the maiden, who joins with the mother and produces offspring in the sacred marriage and then protects the grandmother, right? And then the grandmother, this is one of the things that I enjoy. In the Old Testament, we learned that if you wanted something from Solomon, you didn't go directly to Solomon, you went to his mother, Bathsheba, because she had the power. And that was typical in those cultures at that time. In Egypt, we see that the Pharaoh is only Pharaoh if it's both male and female. And I can go on and on and on, but those are some of the examples. So we have to have the sacred marriage for the man to be the one who is the anointed one, the son of the son, the king of kings, 
I think you see where I'm going. Yes. Kairos <laughs> Gamos had to happen for the man that we know of as Jesus to yes. be honored as the Messiah or the Christ. So there's a story, there's this marvelous author, Margaret Starbird, who talks about the woman with the alabaster jar. And she points out that we first meet Mary Magdalene after a woman anoints Jesus in a tradition that has been thousands of years before Jesus was ever around. She comes in with her jar of special ointments and anoints him on his head and on her, his feet. And this is part of how he is the anointed one. And he can okay. now function as the king of kings. And this is all prior to his you know, entry into Jerusalem. So the book is so all about all the, this stuff. So this was the woman uh, anointing him and giving a permission, if you like, right. for him yes. to... Um, it, it 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 more like a rite of passage for him. Exactly. Well, it's a coronation. You know, have, have you seen the coronation? What does the yeah. archbishop do? He anoints her. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He anoints. Yeah. We have a video of the archbishop anointing Elizabeth to become queen. You know, and if we look at other coronations, we'll see the same thing. So it's very similar. So the inspiration was all of this stuff all coming together and the book has pulled it all together. And then it goes on to say that her name in English is Mary in Greek is Marianne and in Hebrew is Miriam. And in the Old Testament, there is one Miriam, period. That's Moses. Is Moses. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> Moses' sister. sister. Yeah. Right. And she's the one who makes it possible for him to be trained and grow up in the princely household of the Pharaoh, which That's at that right. time, we, I believe, was a Hittite Pharaoh. And that it was later that he was dealing with the Egyptians who had taken it back. So we can talk about that later. But Miriam then leads the dances, the celebrations. Yes. When we, we get. But then she's kicked out because he chooses to marry a Cushite instead of her. He should have married her in that tradition. All right. But he marries. So are you saying that there is a link between Mary and Miriam? Yeah. The, she goes on underground and she trains all the head women of all the tribes. And you can see that in little bits in the Old Testament. And then they name a well after her when she dies. Yes. And then in the in the in the Old Testament in the Book of Ruth, which I happen to know rather well, <laughs> for some reason I can't imagine why, um, when Naomi comes back, her husband has died. She comes back to Bethlehem and she says, "Okay, call me no more Naomi. I am Mara now." Well, Mara is one letter short of Miriam. Yeah. M R M is the Miriam, and M R is Mara, and she became the head woman and her chosen daughter, Ruth, marries the head man. And now she is the mother-in-law of the head couple. And Jesus is a descendant of all that. Thank you so much for bringing oh that up. Oh my gosh, thank you, Diego, for bringing this up. This is just like, I need this book. <laughs> I'm gonna order this book because it's so, it's so needed what you have created here and, I, Thank you. and what I love is that you've pulled in spirituality, anthropology, history, metaphysics, I mean the whole lot, it, it feels like you've just woven it together so beautifully and Yay. I just, I'm very excited. Thank I'm very you. excited because we need more of this, we need more of education on women and the matriarch and and where we are right now in our society and our culture what's happening and how we can on the past to be confident in many ways as well mm -hmm. well one of, you know part of my one of my careers was as a futurist one of my careers was as a futurist so one of the things i'm really interested in is what kind of future are we creating okay that the yes. present is kind of a mess 
what are we yeah. creating? And the reason the present is a mess is because the system of strong, light-skinned men run in the world is dying. Yeah, it's yes, it's dissolving right. around us. And I think we have to look at the past to find what worked for thousands of years to be able to create what can work for thousands of years to come. And that's part of why this book is here. And then I wrote another book that I call Home, which is my I notion of what a sustainable cultural could look like, a sustainable culture could look like. In the so, future now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. starting now. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and I've been very so happy beautiful. because- it's Thank so, you. it's so, I mean, I love watching um, historical uh, uh, programs and documentaries, and I love watching programs about how England was even, you know, uh, one or 200 years ago, and the role of women, mm -hmm. and how women have just, uh, well, I mean, we've been medicalized for <laughs> thousands and thousands and we're still right. being medicalized now by the way i believe um oh absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I one of my um when i would one of the publishing companies i've worked with published a book uh, by a woman whose mother had been tossed into the um, insane asylums because she was basically in um postpartum Menopause. depression yeah and, and yeah, well, it was even before menopause, but yes, she had a nine kids in 11 years. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. no wonder she was going through some kind of depression. <laughs> right. So she was in an asylum for almost her whole life. And so I was asked to do an analysis of, how, of the history of that. And one of the things that I did was um, there are a number of feminists, therapists who have said yeah. that um, this is no, this is what the system is designed to do but I looked at what is called the diagnostic statistical manual right yeah. and it, it's you know the definition of a quote neurotic and the description of a woman almost exactly parallel yes so by definition in our psychotherapeutics yeah a woman is already not sane yeah this is a problem <laughs> this is a problem and this is this is this is a problem that we need to uh that there needs to be a change here in our um, in the diagnosis of of medical definitions the understanding of medical definitions and the reinterpretation mm -hmm. When I was um, studying for menopause, uh, I was working with women who were in menopause and had osteoporosis, and I studied this for my master's. And what came through for me was that women have just been um, placated. We've just been placated, but it goes back, obviously, uh, you know, centuries, thousands, millennia, it goes back so many years. But yes. we've just been placated and told what to do and how to be and how to behave. Yes. And what I love about what you, what you do is because you're bringing in the new thought perspective here as well. Thank and you. how women like Emma Curtis Hopkins and Mary Baker Eddy, in their way, made that change yes. for women. Because they were yes. both feminists, weren't they? They were both in, in the feminist right. movement. They knowing both, that you know a hundred and hundred odd years ago we couldn't vote right when they were born was right after the convention the the women's convention in new york that um, right. elizabeth katie stanton and susan b anthony organized and um i like it that emily katie is is probably a cousin of elizabeth katie stanton <laughs> so okay. she's another new thought teacher but one of the things that conference did that women's conference did was say there are some things that women can do to earn money in a culture that you know up to that time it wasn't possible for women to have an income and uh, um, healing professions were on that list the the gentler ones not surgery because that was you know saws and hammers and things but um you know water therapies homeopathy etc so when mary baker was widowed as mary baker glover she trained as a homeopath 
and she married a an itinerant dentist and she and her husband would go around town to town to town they'd spend three weeks to a couple of months in a town and they would treat people for various things but one of the things mary baker glover said uh, as she you know she went on she she became mary baker patterson that was her dentist and then they divorced when she healed herself having studied with um yeah parker's quimby. quimby parker's quimby she studied and he showed her how to heal herself and then she hurt herself again right after he had passed on and so she was able to take what she had learned from him and hole up in a boarding house and heal herself again. And that's the beginning of Science and Health with the Key to the Scriptures and the beginning of her training. Well, at that point, she divorced from Patterson. Yeah. She was known as Mrs. Glover again in Lynn, Massachusetts, and she was doing remarkable work. It's in the newspapers, what she was doing. It's also in the newspapers when she was teaching Quimby's method as Dr. Patterson. And then uh, she ran her first class in Lynn, Massachusetts. This is now 1875. And so at that point, Asa Eddy takes her class and he says, you know, this is really important. I will take you to Boston and we will launch a school, the Metaphysical College. So there now Mrs. Eddy, Mary, Mary Baker Eddy, is running her own college in 1876. This is amazing. You know, and it's true, however, that at that point in the U.S., more there were a larger percentage of women were professionals than in 1976. And some of that had to do with the number of men who had died during the Civil wow. War. Wow. And this is a time where the average uh, age, the, the more, more, mortality rate for women was something like 47. Right. If you made it through childbirth years, you'd go on to 60 or 70. Yeah. But it was making it through that period between about 18 and 38. That was and it was height. during menopause that they would put le they would just tell women to lie down, go to bed, lie down, put leeches on them to suck their blood out. I mean, it was yeah. quite barbaric. Yes, it <laughs> really was. But it, it was how women were treated and how women responded to that. So for yeah. her to do that, to stand up huge, and say, huge. there's a new way and I'm going to use it with the power of my mind, that was huge. That was. So she you know, would still go around the, the New England area and teach people. And she was invited to Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut, and a woman you know, invited her neighbors and one of that woman's neighbors was Emma Curtis Hopkins, whose family was always dealing with respiratory issues. And Emma was a science teacher. She'd been a high school teacher and because right after the Civil War, there weren't teachers, right? So any bright girl was encouraged to become a teacher and she was very bright and she loved to study. So she was a teacher only when she married, she wasn't allowed to teach anymore. So she was home with her kids and her kid, her son, and you know, being pretty bored but studying and she attended tea listened to mrs eddy and said no way this is not scientific this can't possibly be real but about a month later her family got really 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 sick and the neighbor came over after the doctors had not been able to do anything the neighbor came over and turned that whole thing around in 24 hours they were all fine so immediately, Emma wrote a letter to Mrs. Eddy saying, I need to know what you're talking about here. <laughs> Can I study with you? <laughs> and she and she informs Mrs. Eddy that her husband has student loans they're still paying off, so she can't afford to pay her in advance, but she would happily pay her from her proceedings as a practitioner on the other side of the training. Oh, so, <laughs> yes. So student loans in the 1870s and yeah. 80s. <laughs> They're not a new problem. So, so she goes, she commutes between Connecticut and Boston for, for months. And she does the training. She completes it in December of 1884, 1883, I'm sorry, 1883. And then for 1884 and 1885, she's continuing to commute. She becomes the editor of Mrs. Eddy's journal which is not the Christian Science Monitor, not the newspaper, it's the internal journal, the newsletter to students, the newsletter to practitioners. And Emma is the editor. 
and which is all well and good and she's commuting and she's being a practitioner and she's learning and she's listening and she's you know sharing and she's writing and all of that and then in september of 85 she made a huge mistake the same mrs eddy who had the strength to go out and do this had begun to realize it was her way or no way and Emma wrote in September of 1885, of the great mystical writers, Mrs. Eddy shines the brightest. Whoops. Mm. There can't be other writers. There can only be Mrs. Eddy. In October, she was out. Emma was out. She was no longer yeah. part of that. By February of 86, she's been invited and has moved to Chicago to edit a journal there. And she sets up as a practitioner and a journal editor in Chicago and begins the Hopkins Institute with another woman named Mary Plunkett and it goes on from there. But Emma did one thing very different. First of all, over time, she evolved her own version of the lessons into somewhat different from Christian science, which is interesting. Initially, she's almost parroting Mrs. Eddy with only minor additions. But by the time you get to 1918 and high mysticism, it's a whole different world. Right. Over that time, she, she treated 11,000 documented cases and the, her institute became a seminary and she ordained 110 ministers, including oh, Charles wow. and Myrtle Fillmore. Yes. Who launched the Unity program in the 1890s which is still very much around, unity.org. I spoke at a Unity Church yesterday. And then her last student, she was having, her heart was giving out. She had just kind of lost heart for the whole thing. In 1923-24, her last student was in October of 1924. And it was Ernest Holmes, the founder of Religious Science, which is now Centers for Spiritual Living. And so he, he came, he wanted to interview her. He interviewed everybody. He had been trained in Boston in 1915, 16 as an elocutionist and had studied with the Christian scientists while he was there. But his brother was a congregational minister who, worked, who took Ernest with him to uh, California, to Venice, California. Southern California, and they were active in the LA area. They even set up a, a rest home, a cure home uh, in Long Beach at, at one point. They were very active. So I won't get into Ernest Holmes too much. But to stay with the women, by the time Emma was in Chicago, she was realizing that this was not only a, you know, a, a healing process, this was a way for women to be able to be independent. And so when the World's Fair happened in Chicago, Mary Baker Eddy was in the Parliament of World Religions. Emma Hopkins was in the Women's Pavilion offering this as a tool for women to be healed I and to see. heal others. Oh my gosh, this is this just so click. You know when something just click, click, click. <laughs> Right, so this was really her way of using new thought as a feminist tool. You got it. No, she would this never have amazing. allowed herself to be this called a feminist. <laughs> no, but I mean, that was to the degree that she could. Exactly. She was exactly. using new thought to change the way that, uh, that women were perceived in the world. Right, and that women perceived themselves yes. because you know, that the, the, the line that turned Myrtle Fillmore's life around that is from Emma's teaching is, I am a child of God, therefore I cannot and do not inherit illness. Yes. That's a huge thing. So what Myrtle did is she went back into the Bible and pulled out all the healing messages instead of all the condemning messages that she had right. Right. And she started reading and studying all those healing messages. And that's how unity got started. Okay. This is just this. We could go in so many tangents here. I'm going <laughs> to stick to this, this one thing now. Okay. Um, and that is prayer where prayer right. comes into this. 
because yes. I believe there is a universal prayer that women use <laughs> subconsciously. Okay. We don't maybe know it consciously, but there is this, um, there is a prayer that, that we tap into, isn't there? In our, in our femininity, in our divine, that, that essence of who we are as women. And that's beyond gender. You know, it's like, we know there's a part of us that speaks to us, at, um, whether we're a man, whether we're a woman, whether we're they, that gives us this permission to tap into the feminine within us. And the Hieros Gamas has both. We have there both we are, anima and animus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do we empower ourselves or how do you think Emma, someone like Emma Curtis Hopkins would have empowered herself within, in prayer to really, because I've heard it said that her, her, it, it, was, it was really about her, her transmission, the way that she spoke. It was that, that's what shook people and woke people <laughs> up rather than what she was saying. It was how she was, it was her whole vibration. Right. Her words are powerful, but if you try yeah. to follow her words, you get lost. Yeah. which is why I wrote Unveiling Your Hidden Power, because my students were getting lost, and it was such a powerful message. So I took modern language and modern structure on Emma's words and concepts, and Unveiling Your Hidden Power is that. Right. And Coming Into Freedom is that with Emily Cady, and the whole library of hidden knowledge is that with other people. So for what that's worth. But yes, Emma... Emma did what she taught people to do. You take an hour in the morning and you focus on how divinity is working in and through you as an individual. And you take an hour in the early afternoon and you spend that time focusing on how divinity is working in the world around you. Okay. How that power is working. Oh, yeah. thank you. That's very kind. Thank so, you, Diego. Yeah. So in, in, in Unveiling Your Hidden Power, there's 12 lessons. The first six are the ones you do in the morning. Number yes. one, Monday. Number two, Tuesday. Number three. And then the second six, seven through 12, are what you do in the afternoon. And they yeah. parallel each other, okay? One of my students loves lesson eight. It says, be not deceived. Be not deceived by appearances, right? That's the title of lesson eight. Uh, lesson one is the statement of being, the ground of being. What is the one being? Ah, you can get some of my library of hidden knowledge books down there. <laughs> uh, the ground of being, the essence is goodness. The, the number one thing that she says God is, is God is good. God's work and power is good. God is omnipresent, therefore good is omnipresent. God is omnipotent, therefore good is the only power at work in the world and in me. And she feels this. She, she wrote something in her journals that we call the radiant I am. And it's oh, the, I love that. It's in the back of a couple of that is a That is a prayer. That is, you know. That is a prayer. Yes, you know, you know, God is light. I am a radiant tower of light to all the universe. I think this, I speak this, I write this, I live this. And that's just one of 12 that she does as part of lesson five on Friday mornings. <laughs> So yes. yes, prayer for her is getting into a state of consciousness where these concepts are the reality of our being, right. where right. these ways of connecting with the all that is and that power of good and for good are who we are in the universe. And therefore, our lives and the lives of everyone around us must be enhanced. And that is what Emma was and what she taught. And why 11,000 people walked away from her and 500 Hopkins societies had been established by 1906. It's incredible. 
It's incredible when, when we really think about the enormity of that. By 1906, mm -hmm. 500 Hopkins societies, before mm -hmm. women had the vote mm -hmm. here in the UK. Or in the US. Yeah. Or yeah. Anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before we had any political power. Yeah. So what these women were doing was actually, they were proving the principle. They were yes. proving principles yes. to change their lives in right. bold ways. They were actually yes. really proving it. Yes. And it was working. It was working. And one of her early students, Emma, one of early, Emma's early students in Chicago was a woman who was on her way to have surgery in Chicago. And someone on the train told her about this woman who could heal her without surgery. So she connected from Pueblo, Colorado. She connected to uh, Emma in Chicago and her, we, we call her Mrs. Bingham, Kate Bingham. And in three weeks, she had all of her, they were uterine problems, funny thing about it, healed. And she returned. And one of the things Emma said is in order for you to remain healed, you need to teach this, you need to practice this, you need okay. to do this. So she returns to Pueblo, Colorado and she starts gathering in people so she can start teaching this right yes and she and met one, nona brooks's sister didn't she well it was more than that the whole family the whole family <laughs> yes there were there were three sisters alethea fanny and nona who actually sat in on mrs bingham's classes but nona at that time was 18 and she had cancer of the throat she was starving to death because of this tumor and so they you know everyone's going well maybe this will help nona you never know right the doctors have given up on her maybe we can do something and so they go to mrs bingham's class and the first lesson is what i said it's that grounded being god is good god is working as good well what emma taught people is fill your heart and mind and words with these words repeat them over and over again well these are young good girls right and so they're going home they're doing their chores they're feeding the chicken they're making the food they're making the beds they're cleaning the house god is good good is omnipresent my good is here now you know over and over and over again for a week so they go back for lesson two well lesson two is okay you've said that now all this other garbage is coming up all these negative thoughts are coming up right so there is no sickness oh my goodness there is no sickness well in god's good how can there be sickness right there is no intelligence in matter matter is just inert stuff you know on and on and on lesson two emma changed that one later but at that right. point that's what she was teaching and so, that, you know, they repeat both lesson one and lesson two all day, every day for two weeks. They go into lesson three with Mrs. Bingham, Fanny and Alethea and Nona. And they're on, in the buckboard, right, headed into class. And Nona is, you know, barely able to hold her body up. It's been so long since she could take any sustenance. And she's sitting in the class. And all of a sudden, she's listening to Mrs. Bingham say, in lesson three, we're learning our statements of faith, our affirmations, what is really true. I live and move and have my being in God the good. And at that point, Nona experiences the room just turning into the light. All there is is light. It's almost blinding light. And in that light, she becomes aware of a presence saying, what do you wish, my child? And she says, I'd like to be well. It is so. And she walks out of that class and just going, I'm healed. I'm healed. And her sisters go, great. Keep doing your affirmations. <laughs> And it really wasn't until she sat down and ate a whole meal at dinner that they got right. it. <laughs> it was a spontaneous healing there and then. And, and Nona became a hugely popular and famous healer. Um, she went off to normal school and trained as a teacher and taught in classes. But in the school year, she taught you know elementary school. But during the summer, they would arrange for her to just meet with patients and heal them. 
And what she did all the time is she repeated her understanding of who and what God is and God's presence until she entered that state of light and felt that presence. And then she would ask for this person's healing. And on, you know, after a while, over the course of an afternoon, she didn't have to even go there. She was there right. and someone would walk in the room and they'd walk and out. And it was already done. Right. So would you say that that was kind of the equivalent of, of being in that place where we're in, in a spiritual mind treatment, where we build you got up it. our conviction. So she was basically continually in a treatment, which is what I try and be in all the time, you know, to be in that place. Ideally, that's to, where we all are all the time. That would be heaven. That would yeah, be heaven. If we're all that would be place. heaven. So we're aiming for that rather than having to consciously say a prayer. Right, exactly. We're aiming to be in that in state. That state as much of our day and life as possible. And that's why Emma has us spend an hour in the morning and an hour in the middle of the day doing okay. that. And then in the evening, she says, write your gratitude. She was the one who said, write your gratitudes in the okay. evening. You know, all the wonderful things that happened today, all the healings, all the ways that you saw God's good today. And then that sets you up for this a great day for tomorrow. <laughs> this sets you up for an amazing life. <laughs> Truly so. Oh, it's it's amazing. I, I For anybody that's joining right now, or if you've been watching for a while, we are here with the incredible <laughs> uh, Reverend Dr. Ruth Miller, PhD, who has just spent this last 40 minutes explaining her new book, which is The Madonna, The uh, the Madonna, The Magdalene and Beyond. Have I got that right? Oh, yes. <laughs> the Madonna, The Magdalene and Beyond. And we're talking about the divine feminine and women and women's empowerment, women in new thought. This is an amazing cosmic prayer <laughs> um, because we're really, it, it does come back to prayer also because that's oh. how we understand how we change our experience by being in that mm -hmm. state. Um, so I just want to mention also here that I found you, I found you through, <laughs> because I was guided, th uh, to look at the, the amazing YouTube videos that you have created okay. on these 12, 12 steps or 12 stages of Emma Curtis Hopkins work. And they're mm -hmm. all on YouTube now, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They're still there. Yep. All 12. Mm -hmm. All 12. So for anybody that is watching go into YouTube, look for those 12 and do them. I did them and they're incredible. And you will hear Dr. Ruth Miller talking about Emma Curtis Hopkins and her teachings and how we can put these teachings into our own lives. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful, beautiful Thank work. You. I mean, Thank how you. did Emma actually do this? How did she see 10,000, 11,000 people? Hi, Gina, thank you for joining. How did yeah. she withstand that? emotionally and physically and energetically yeah she 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 had a house in chicago and for the first several years actually two or three years patients would actually come and you know not all of them many of them would stay in the house for three weeks to go through the 12 lessons to take them in and to experience the healing and um she set up a school uh, there's another set of her students, Annie uh, Ritz Millets and her sister, and they went off and established the Sanctuaries of Truth and Homes of Truth. And there's still a Home of Truth in Alameda, California. And, and I think there's a Sanctuary of Truth in Pasadena. So, yeah, they, they established those out of that time. But more, they, they ended up, um, the first institute fell apart. Mary went off to New York, and so they ended up creating a seminary the Illinois Seminary, and um, out of that, in, during while that was functioning, they had 14 different faculty members. She was administering that and would see on the order of, as I understand it, 15 to 30 individual people over the course of a week. She did declare that Sunday was a day for everyone, her, the seventh day of the week, there's 12 lessons, so that's Monday through Saturday, morning and evening. But Sunday was for, you know, just taking it in, just okay. being with it. And 
one of the things she encouraged is spend some time on Sunday afternoon writing letters. You may never send these letters, but these would be to people that you wouldn't normally see or hear from, okay. like politicians or kings and queens or whoever, that you you have a prayer for them or you have a you know something that they could benefit from. So you write that letter maybe on a Sunday afternoon. But other than that, it's your time to be connected with your inner life and inner world. So she would get up um, around dawn, it seems, it sounds like, and she would spend that first hour doing the, the lesson for the day, one through six, from Monday through Saturday. And then she would do personal work, whether that was administrative work or writing or, um, you know, whatever, household work, the things that an individual does for self through the morning. Then there would be the noon break, and then she would spend the hour doing the second group of lessons, 7 through 12, Monday through Saturday. And then she would meet with clients and patients till supper time. And that would usually be a shared meal with other folks. And there was a connection between people. And then teaching would happen in the evening on top of that. Okay. So, My so basically, yeah, her public day was only afternoons and evenings. Her private day was about a 15-hour day. You know, her whole day was about a 15-hour yeah. day of, of immersion in this work. And yeah. she traveled. She went, she went to London a couple of times. Uh, she went to San Francisco. She went to Australia at one point in her life. Nona Brooks also went to Australia. Uh, she went to New York. Emily Cady and Florence Scoville Shin both learned from Emma in New York. Um, so yeah, she was she traveled, and in 1906, she the folks in New Orleans wanted to establish a seminary, and she said, "Here, take it. It's yours." <laughs> And she packed everything up and uh, moved, basically moved into a suitcase. Uh, her husband in 1901 has had divorced her for abandoning him, which I always thought was interesting. Uh, and in 1906, then she hit the road. She spent the winters in the New York area and, you know, hundreds of people connected with her, including many, many well-known playwrights and musicians and um, a, a few socialites. And one of those socialites took her to New Mexico one year. So she connected with Gertrude Stein and D.H. Lawrence. Um, and it's um, Dodge, Dodge Lujan. I'm, I'm blocking the first name, that's funny. Um, but um, Miss Dodge married one of the Lujans and the Lujan family today is that same group of folks. So that are... Wow active in New Mexico politics. So she had an impact on many lives just being on the planet. Mabel, Mabel Incredible. Dodge. Incredible. And she Dodge still continues, on. and she still continues to. Yes. I, I just, I'm so grateful and humbled that you, uh, you have said yes to being here today to share you, to share you, and to share these women, uh, Emma and Mary and others, who have really laid the foundation for others, you know, to follow mm -hmm. and yes. to, to say yes to using new thought for our lives Truly so that we so. change our lives and others' lives. We change our world. Right on. You know, we change our world. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Miller. Thank you. It's been an honor and a delight. It's, it's, it's always a delight to see you and hear you. Have a lovely oh, it's time just amazing. Would you, um, I'm just going to ask you this outright, because at the end of the show, we always do a prayer. All and right. I wonder if you would, uh, you would uh, say a prayer, sure. you would treat, or whichever way you call that, whatever <laughs> you call it, if you would be uh, kind enough to do that here on the Cosmic Prayer today. It would be an honor, and I never turn down the opportunity. Great. <laughs> Thank nice. you. Ah, so I invite us to take a breath, a long, slow, deep breath, mm. just to being ourselves centered into the being that we are in this place and time. And now another long, slow, deep breath to release that which no longer serves us in this moment. To be focused. And finally, one more, to bring our awareness deep into our internal core. 
And in this place, in the core of our being, there is only the love, only the light, only the well-being that is, only the peace, only the harmony. In the core of our being, all is well. And we become aware that we are breathing. And our breath is bringing more of that omnipotent, omnipresent good into our being. And the core of our being accepts what it is and accepts more of that simply in our breathing. The good that is enters in and as we breathe out, it moves through the body, touching every cell of our body. So every ligament, every organ, every part of this body is brought into greater health and well-being with every breath. And so we breathe. And knowing this truth, we feel the life and the love that is our good in and through every aspect of this body, this being that we are here and now. And we realize that as this good is moving through every cell, it is also moving every thought, every thought in our mind, every memory, every dream, wish, or hope is being brought into greater light, greater love, greater good, greater balance, ah, well-being in all its forms, in our body, in our mind, in the whole system of mind and body, alignment with the good that is everywhere, with the good that is moving in our being and in our world now as we speak. We feel this in every aspect of being. We allow this to be our true and normal nature. Ah, the good. And as we allow this awareness of the good to be our essence and our norm, we realize that with every breath and every word and every action, we are moving that good into the world around us. We feel that good moving through us and as us into our world. We feel it bringing the world into greater alignment and harmony around us. We are aware that every being in all that is, is this good made manifest as we are now. Every breath, every thought, every word is radiating light and love into the world. And if there is any being or situation that enters into our awareness now that does not feel like harmony, in this moment we breathe that light and that love into that, into that being or situation that it may know the harmony that is our good. <sighs> Well-being life, love, peace, and deep, deep joy and satisfaction. Our fulfillment is here and now. And we feel a deep well of gratitude rising up as we're aware of this, that this is our nature. This is what the universe is. This is our life. Oh, what a great gift of joy and peace and love. Mm. Here and now and always in all ways. 
So we breathe again, resting in this knowledge, in this knowing, in this being that is the truth of all being, always. For so it truly is. And so I say, Amen. Thank you for listening to Cosmic Prayer, your weekly shift with Laura Topper on the New Thought Media Network. If you've enjoyed this programming, please tell a friend and join us again next week for Cosmic Prayer, your weekly shift with Laura Topper.